My dear listeners, to Voices of the Sacred Feminine, broadcasting across the globe for eight years now, speaking truth for those with no voice, speaking truth to power, sharing the news of the cognitive minority as we begin to manifest a new normal for the quality of life for the 99%. Yes, it's here. We talk about it all, sex, power, politics, religion, all the things nice girls were once told not to bother their pretty little heads with. But you know what? We want a seat at the table, because without us, without ideals of the sacred feminine, humanity will continue to spiral down into this pit that patriarchy has created for us. And we welcome our evolved, like-minded brothers who are also the cognitive minority, sharing their wisdom here as well. And together, we'll shout these new ideas out like we have been over the years. We'll unravel the knot of the patriarchy. We'll shed light on every agenda they'd rather we not talk about because it's transparency, not secrets, that will lead to our liberation and empowerment. And yes, indeed, we'll not stop until we change the world. And thank you for joining me each week because together we do our part to uplift all of humanity because... To us, it's the 99% that matter. Well, 
That new cut opening tonight's show was by Jan Aldridge Planton. You might have uh, noticed that the uh, melody was familiar. Uh, Jan is really great at uh, taking melodies that we know, and she uh, changes the lyrics to make them uh, female-friendly, goddess-friendly, Sophia-friendly, that sort of thing. Uh, Jan's been on my show several times, and as recently as a few weeks ago, we talked about her new book, Sophia, and um, how we Wisdom is, um, is, is really working out there. Uh, also, she's a contributor to the new uh, anthology based on uh, this radio show's uh, former guests. So if you're interested in uh, getting goddess-inspired music, you'll want to be sure to look her up and get her spiral-bound book of music. And her name, again, is Jan Aldridge Clanton. And that uh, song we played tonight was To Sound Forth the News. Well, tonight uh, is my special holiday show, for, and for the first time, Roy uh, is co-hosting with me. Say hi, Roy. Hi, Roy. <laughs> yep, uh, that fella I talk about so much, he's here with me tonight. Uh, the guy who uh, I've dedicated several of my books to, the guy I describe as the wind beneath my wings, he'll be assisting uh, in a few minutes uh, to bring you... Um, the goddesses of the winter solstice and the legends and lore of Christmas. Uh, We're covering some material never quite covered before here for the holidays about the Germanic goddesses being demonized by Christianity, about Italy's Bafana, the Germanic Hola and Perchta. Uh, We'll talk about Grilla, uh, Russia's Snow Girl, the influence of the Romans on Christmas, the Egyptian influence on Christmas. Um, and the reason, you know, we're actually doing this show is because of a few of you listeners. I was uh, putting out some emails saying that uh, last Friday I uh, was going to be giving my annual talk to the Theosophical Society in Long Beach and uh, described uh, some of these things that um, I was going to present to the people who came. And uh, you wrote me and said, well, we want to know about this too. How can we hear? Um, can you put it on a you know, CD or something? Can we buy a tape? And I said, wow, well, you know, why didn't I think of this myself? I should just do a show. So that's uh, what we're doing tonight. So, Roy, do you think Friday night uh, folks had fun at the uh, presentation? we gave yeah I think they really enjoyed it because they got to participate yeah yeah because um, you know uh, we had uh, had time for them to ask questions and we sang one of Jan's uh, Christmas carols at the end and uh, if we have time tonight I'll uh, I'm not going to sing it for you but uh, I'll share some of the words to give you an idea how she, uh, you know, takes these melodies and puts more meaningful um, sacred feminine-oriented, uh, you know, words to uh, to the melodies. Um, well, uh, I hope you will get comfortable because uh, after we share these uh, uh, seasonal things, I'm going to read for you an inspirational uh, reading from my new book, Goddess Calling, and we'll close tonight with a meditation. And the meditation that I've chosen for tonight uh, to share with you is uh, also from Goddess Calling. It's uh, Chapter 27, and it's going to be uh, based on the sleeping goddess of Malta. And the theme of the meditation is dreaming and inspiration. And I think that's uh, a good choice for this time of year because that's really what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be 
going within, uh, finding inspiration, looking at uh, what didn't maybe work last year, what did work, uh, sort of reassess um, so that we can reinvent ourselves uh, next year. So hopefully the meditation will help inspire you to know uh, exactly who you want to be next year, who will be the new you. Uh, so get comfortable, uh, and we're going to share a few announcements here, and then we will start the show. Um, I am still looking for an audio file of a lioness growling. I've mentioned that a couple times. If anyone can find a free one for me, please send along the MP3 or MP4 because when we talk about our sacred roar, we're going to hear the lioness. Um, also, I'll be uh, guest ministering at the Goddess Temple of Orange County this coming Sunday and speaking on the topic of faith and trusting in the journey. And if you happen to have my book, Goddess Calling, you can read that entry yourself uh, titled Trusting in the Journey, and we can sort of be in attunement. Um, looking forward to seeing you. If you are in the area, please do come. And, you know, if you don't know about the temple, uh, let me tell you just a little bit about it. Uh, I've written about it in um, my first book, Sacred Places of Goddess, 108 Destinations. Uh, but if you don't have the book, and quite frankly, it's changed tremendously since uh, uh, on the interior since I, I actually wrote that book in 2005. It's just become an incredible place. Uh, there's a huge sanctuary where most of the um, services and rituals or performances happen. And at the front of the room, there is a larger-than-life-size seated Sekhmet, uh, the lion-headed Egyptian goddess that so many uh, of us women uh, feel is our archetype of, you know, personal empowerment, you know, as we try to be tenacious and courageous and uh, say no without uh, feeling guilt and set healthy boundaries, those sorts of things. She is seated on her four-foot-tall pyramid throne. Uh, there's also Oshun's Lounge. There's Kuan Yin's Meditation Room. There's the Isis Library. Um you know, it's really in a pretty incredible place. And if you heard that it was only for women, well, that has changed over time, too. It is no longer just for women. Uh, the uh, events that they have in the evenings, uh, sometimes they're for mixed genders. And uh, while they do have uh, three Sundays that are women only, the fourth Sunday, like this upcoming Sunday, uh, is for uh, families. So you can bring uh, your sons, you can bring your loved ones, you can bring your husbands. Uh, so it's for, for all genders. Uh, you know, they really are moving more and more uh, into that direction. So please check it out. I don't think uh, you will be disappointed. It is really a spectacularly beautiful place. And, um, and you know, all sorts of goddess artifacts uh, are there from the Paleolithic up to uh, contemporary goddesses. Uh, you know, you go in, and honestly, there's so much there to see, it's hard to even absorb it all in one visit. So anyway, uh, you know, I hope you'll take my uh, recommendation and visit the Goddess Temple of Orange County in Irvine. And perhaps you haven't heard uh, about the seminar at sea uh, coming up the week of Valentine's Day. Uh, Roy and I are some of the workshop presenters. Uh, the seminars uh, are on the love boat, as Roy likes to say. 
actually, uh, it's Princess Cruises that's uh, headed toward the Mexican Riviera for seven days. It uh, costs $999, and for that price, um, you know, it's 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 a few pennies for sure, but you get all the food you want. I mean, you know how cruises are. Um, all sorts of entertainment, uh, workshops, uh, I mean, just all the workshops you can squeeze in for the week. Uh, the workshops uh, are going to be on improving all the relationships in your life, relationships of all kinds, from platonic relationships, work relationships, your love life. Uh, so, you know, it's a pretty good deal. Maybe it ties into your um, resolutions for next year to, um, you know, bring a better quality of, uh, of people into your life, you know, to have better relationships. So, so just a thought. And if you decide to sign up, make sure you get in touch with me first because I can offer you a secret code and uh, if you have the secret code, you actually get a little bit of an added discount to reduce that $9.99 price. Um, and uh, while we're still on the subject of travel, uh, we also have the Sacred Tour to Turkey coming up in May. Uh, we're taking no more than about 20 women and men to Anatolia, as Turkey was once called, and that means Land of the Nourishing Mothers. Turkey is um, a real diamond in the rough. It's at a crossroads of cultures. It's a melting pot. And, um, you know, it's it's great to go there because your money spends so well. They aren't on the euro yet. The food's delicious. Um, you know, because most people who visit there are really sort of doing the footsteps of St. Paul and they're visiting, you know, all the churches. Well, we're not doing that. Instead, we're going to archaeological sites, um, you know, where goddess had her temples. And uh, so often there's no one there but us. And uh, we'll have the opportunity to do private rituals uh, at sacred sites of goddesses like Isis, Demeter, Mary, Aphrodite, uh, Hecate's uh, only known standing temple is there in uh, Lagina. Uh, we'll be going there. So I, I, I could go on and on, but I won't. Uh, you've heard me talk about it before, but I do have to keep reminding you because um, if you think you're interested, we really need to know sooner rather than later because we are counting heads and uh, we want to know if, uh, if you think you're going to go. And I'm co-leading it, as I've said before, with uh, my dear friend uh, and the brilliant Dr. James Reedfeld, whose new book is only out uh, a few weeks now. It's titled uh, Artemis of the Ephesians, Her Mystery, Magic, and Sacred Landscape. Honestly, um, there's no better pair to travel to Turkey with than us, if I dare say so myself. Besides visiting the sacred sites of Goddess for 16 days, doing ritual in some of her sacred places, you'll also get to um, the opportunity to take a real Turkish bath, uh, experience the energy of the whirling dervishes that are so famous. And if you're interested, you'll have um, the opportunity to do an add-on uh, or an extension, as it's called, to Chateau Hayuk or Gobeki Tepki. So, as I said before, if you're interested or you have questions, please let me know sooner rather than later. And one of the questions I seem to always get is, is it safe? 
Well, think about it. Would we risk our lives going there if it weren't safe? No, no, we really wouldn't, and we wouldn't risk your life either. If you look at a map and you compare our itinerary to where, you know, all war zones are, we are nowhere near it. And also, if we shouldn't travel to Turkey, the State Department would have advisories out. So um, I think you can feel pretty sure that uh, we will be safe. All right. Well, that about uh, takes care of all of our announcements and the housekeeping. I thank you for your patience. And uh, now we're going to go ahead and uh, get on with uh, tonight's holiday show. So, Roy, you still with me there? I'm right here. Well, I want to thank you for joining me tonight. Um, I think we probably should have tried this uh, maybe a long time ago. What do you think? Uh, Let me think about that one. (laughs) We'll see how this works out, and then you can tell me if you had fun or not, huh? Yes, (laughs) ma'am. Maybe I'll I'll have to twist your arm and get you back. Um, Well, before we uh, we start, um, I want to give just a quick little special thanks to uh, Don uh, Wildgrube and Samantha Sage. Uh, It's some of their material that uh, I'm using tonight, and I've got an assortment of material actually from a lot of different sources, but uh, uh, but I wanted to just make sure I mention those two uh, because we refer to some of their research uh, to bring uh, this show to you. So thank you for being with us, and um, as I said, sit back and relax with a cup of tea because we have a lot to share with you. Um, You know, uh, we just finished Thanksgiving, and um, Thanksgiving was a holiday that was created uh, here in the United States to bring unity and cohesion to many diverse people, but you may or may not know uh, the myth of the holiday is nothing like reality. Uh, and as a goddess advocate, you know, who grew up in the Bible Belt and never heard of a goddess until I came to California, I've come to value the truthiness, as uh, our, our friend um, Stephen Colbert says, the truthiness of history and herstory, as we say, instead of what the powers in charge just want us to believe. Or, um, you know, you think back to the church, you know, putting scientists in prison or to death for teaching scientific principles like the world isn't flat or the earth revolves around the sun. So, you know, I've come to sort of pride myself and uh, the folks that, uh, uh, you know, like you out there and uh, the folks that we hang around with and, you know, believe this sort of stuff, know this sort of stuff. You know, we're the cognitive minority. We're maybe in the minority today, but we think we have some information that the mainstream world has not caught on to yet, and we're waiting for them to catch up. So um, if you've been doing your homework, you know an awful lot of our mythology comes from the Babylonians, the Egyptians, uh, the pagans. And so tonight we're going to discuss the goddesses of the winter season, some legends and lore of Christmas. Now these vary a lot, so what you're hearing might be new or old or different. Um, So Roy and I are going to offer you kind of like a buffet of uh, many different snippets uh, here and there. So please use them as a jumping-off place. And uh, if you hear something interesting, you know, uh, explore it a bit more. So, um, Roy, where are we going to start tonight? Okay, why don't don't you start out by telling us about 
the goddesses of the season who were demonized by Christianity. Ah, demonized by Christianity. Well, um, now, if you've been a regular to my show, uh, that's not a topic that uh, uh, we're afraid to talk about here. We've talked about uh, the feminine being demonized by Abrahamic religions. um, And uh, some of these goddesses, especially the Germanic ones, that's actually what happened to them. But we know you know that's sort of what patriarchy does they diminish the feminine uh what they are uh, what they feel threatened by what may uh, you know be powerful well they want to marginalize it um and we think about some of the ancient goddesses <clears throat> maybe that you know a little bit better uh who was demonized in patriarchy take Hera for instance you know uh after um, patriarchy gets its hands on Hera's myth. Well, I'll, you know, there's not much more to Hera other than chasing after her philandering husband, and you know she becomes just a shadow of her former, uh, more authentic, um, powerful goddess self. Uh, Aphrodite, well, she's just a boudoir babe. You know, she's uh, she's not much else uh, than that. Uh, Athena, she's birthed from Zeus's head. You know, her mother doesn't even have any um, any role in her birth because now um, men have decided they're also going to take over the role of life giver. Uh, and Lilith, well, she's a great one that certainly got demonized, like some of these Germanic goddesses we're going to talk about tonight. Um, we know Lilith was Adam's first wife, uh, as the story goes, and, you know, Lilith wanted... Uh, I guess equality and partnership. She wasn't going to, you know, be underneath Adam uh, metaphorically and maybe, uh, you know, uh, it, it, you know, realistically, shall we say? And uh, she said, you know, I'm not going to have this. I'm out of here. And of course, then Eve enters the picture, and uh, you know, Lilith goes off into mythology as this horrible demon that I don't know eats babies or something like that. Um, but we know that. Um, uh, in Germany, uh, Charlemagne made it his mission to unite the Germanic tribes under one banner, but it's easier to unite people if they worship one god, if they have one system of belief. So during this campaign, Germanic indigenous culture was attacked with vigor. Ancient holy trees and sacred groves were chopped down, pagan holidays and holy figures were banned. And, um, you know, we know this because of the writings from the church. Uh, oftentimes, you know, we, you know, we get this sort of information from uh, the writings of the conquerors or the enemies of the subject. I mean, think of Cleopatra. You know, Cleopatra, we know more about her from the Romans, who were her enemies, than we know straight from Cleopatra's mouth herself. And... Um, and some of these um, uh, ordinances uh, that came from the church, we can tell they were very angry about these Germanic goddesses, um, and they were angry with the people who would not uh, give up their pagan goddesses. Uh, because we have you know, written in some of the chronicles of the church, uh, I'm reading some here, these are quotes, they say, they are sinners, 
uh, they say in the 15th century, who leave food for Perchta in the night of Perchta. Percha was a Germanic goddess. They leave food for Perchta on her holy night to obtain prosperity and well-being in the coming year. So, um, you know, we see that... Uh, you know, uh, things like that happen. Or, or Luther, uh, he turned his disapproval uh, on another Germanic goddess called Fraholda, and uh, he said that she had a tremendous nose. You know, he was saying she was ugly. Well, doesn't that make you think about how they, um, how they talk about witches, you know, with the warts and the nose and, you know, ugly, scary creatures. So, you know, think about that. Um, because, uh, because of this history, it's hard to know when we're reading about these Germanic goddesses, um, you know, how they really, you know, what they really meant to the people. Because oftentimes we see them with... Um, you know, a goddess-like demeanor, but we also have them uh, as a demon. And besides the goddesses that were demonized by the church, uh, the fairies and the elves also met the same fate. Um, Fairies were even strongly associated with witchcraft and uh, were often a key feature in witch trials. So in any case, um, some of these... um, uh, goddesses that uh, you know that come out uh, around Christmas, uh, you know Christianity wanted people to fear them and not look to them for good things anymore. So um, so that's um, that's you know pretty much a, you know an intro to why some of these goddesses uh, might have a darker side and uh, how you know the church's role uh, in demonizing them. Um, so um, what now, Roy? Where are we going? What's next on our list? Well, you know, on Friday you were talking about the roles of Germanic women, and it made me think about the series we've been watching, uh, The Vikings mm. with the Sword Maidens. I think yeah. your listeners would like to know how important the roles of women were in Germanic regions of Europe. Well, you know, yeah, um, that's one of our favorite series, The Vikings. And uh, if you've, um, uh, if you watched it, I think it was on uh, early last year, well, the beginning of 2014, and I think it's about ready to come back in January. I wholeheartedly recommend it. I can't remember the channel it came on, Roy. Do you remember what channel, The Vikings? Um, not really. Um, no, well, you. That's okay. That's all right. Well, you know, you you got to really see that the roles of women, um, you know, in in Viking cultures were nothing at all like the roles of women, say, uh, over in England, and um, uh, in in the Germanic women had important roles. Uh, in their society, you know, they were often the ones home guarding the homestead while the men were off at war, uh, or maybe they were doing some sort of raid or trading. And, and you actually saw that in the uh, in the series as well. You know, they had to hold down the fort, and that you know that meant you know they had to defend defend the homestead if if necessary. Um, We know like the Celts, uh, the Germanic women were often trained to wield a sword, and we mentioned the sword maidens. And um, although women on the battlefield uh, were not as common as men, it wasn't uncommon either. And there are lots of female... uh, 
accounts of female bravery uh, in battle, and it's known that certain battle tactics were designed specifically for shield maidens. So it might uh, be that the women who tended the homestead were seen as strong protectresses uh, by their children, and I don't think it's uh, too far of a stretch to suggest that they were emulating powerful goddesses, you know, just like we look to powerful goddesses like Sekhmet and Kali. And, you know, we're sort of the modern-day shield maidens. Um, and, indeed, many Germanic female names have elements of strength and battle in them. For example, the name Matilda translates as mighty battle maiden. So whatever the case, we know that female ancestors remained a prominent element in Germanic heathen religion. They were celebrated uh, not only during something called Mother's Night, but they also enjoyed another holiday during the autumnal equinox, uh, and, and it was called Disablot. Dis and while uh, Mother's Night is, um, you know, sort of goes back to Anglo-Saxon sources, Disablot um, is actually Norse. However, both cultures share linguistic and cultural heritage. Um, there's also votive inscriptions along the Rhine River uh, that demonstrate that a cult of the mothers, also called matres, or matrones existed in southern Germany, Gaul, and northern Italy, and half of the inscriptions are Germanic, while the other half are Celtic. So this again demonstrates that the old religion placed a high emphasis on celebrating maternity and the feminine. So, um, you know, we need to know about that because uh, all women, you know, they did not have the same fate. I mean, we know Egyptian women, you know, could uh, divorce their husbands, they could... Um, you know, own property, they could own businesses. Uh, so it really just depended on um, the time in history and, and where you lived. Okay, I think that's, all, that's a, all about that for now. Well, let me mention um, the Vikings is a, his, a history channel show. And if you get a chance, at least see one, one of the episodes, it's really, really good. It it is. It's an it's an awesome awesome show. I mean, you get to see some of their religion. You get to see how the men and women interact with one another. Um, you know, it, and the the costuming. They even have tattoos. And I mean, it's just it feels really realistic, don't you think, Roy? It's very realistic to what it was. Yeah. And um, so I think uh, what's the first goddess on our list? There, we're going to talk about next. All right, Petra, uh, was she a demon or a goddess? Ah, yes. Yeah, it's hard to know, isn't it, because of all of the stuff that, uh, you know, how, how Christianity influenced uh, the pagan. So Perchta, um, you know, it's hard to know exactly how to say these goddesses' names. They're spelled differently, um, and I don't know about you, but I've never heard anyone actually utter these names, so we're doing our best here. But Perchta, P-E-R-C-H-T-A. Um, Perchta is, is multifaceted. She's considered to be related to um, a goddess you might have heard me mention a couple minutes ago, the goddess Hola, Hola, H-O-L-L-E. Uh, she's known around the German-speaking world and in name, uh, neighboring areas. She's sometimes seen as a beautiful lady in white, but, you know, sometimes seen as a hideous monster. And again, I can't help but think that's, 
you know, where the Christian influence comes in. Uh, Perchta also goes by uh, many other names as, as Hola, Hola. She's also known as Holda, H-O-L-D-A, or Hulda, H-U-L-D-A. Perchta is sometimes called Birchta, with a B instead of a P, or Bertha, which was my grandmother's name, uh, and many other variants. And honestly, till I saw Bertha here reading about Perchta, I didn't realize that uh, my, my grandma's name uh, came from the Germanic people. So Hola and Perchta appear to have been very widespread and greatly honored by the Germanic people. And, um, and, and as such, as you might imagine, there was a large-scale campaign to halt their veneration uh, launched by the church. And while uh, goddess Hola lived on in folklore as Frau Hole, Frau Hole, I believe that implies she was someone's wife, she was a Frau, you know, like in India, they domesticate the goddesses to kind of uh, keep them under control. Same thing apparently happened to Hola. Uh, and Perchta uh, lived on as a hideous monster who comes out of the forest to terrorize villagers at Christmas. Now, doesn't that remind you of Lilith a little bit, you know? Um, but a little bit more on Hola and Perchta. Uh, they seem to usually appear in midwinter, especially the nights between Christmas and Epiphany, which I think is uh, around the beginning of January. And it's the season uh, to honor the spirits. Uh, though the feasts are Christian, we know that they coincide in a time with earlier pagan uh, celebrations. And... Um, Frau Perchta comes at Christmas time to inspect the order of the household. Her anger and her punishment fall on those who have not eaten herring and dumplings in her honor on the last day of the year. And uh, food may be presented uh, to Perchta and related spirits in a city called Vilnos in South Tyrol. Uh, they uh, put out dumplings and eggs on rooftops uh, the night before Epiphany for Perchta. Sounds like cookies for Santa, doesn't it? Hmm. <laughs> um, and also uh, the name of these goddesses uh, lives on in the German speech. Um, there are days... Uh, and nights named after Perchta, and um, I, I'm hard-pressed to try to pronounce these German words, so just take my word for it that uh, the days and nights are named after the uh, Perchta and Hola. And um, the, these goddesses were associated with spinning and fertility of the crops and the animals and humans, because remember, there was no, there was no corner grocery store. You know, if you didn't grow it, you didn't eat, and if your animals didn't thrive, then you maybe didn't have milk or uh, eggs or whatever you needed to survive. So you needed fertility of the crops, you needed fertility of the animals, and you know what, maybe you even needed fertility of the humans because you needed extra little hands uh, to help out in the fields, you know, free labor. So, um, you know, it was an important thing to be a goddess of fertility because that meant the difference between life and death. Uh, these goddesses were also nocturnal huntresses, and they were said to make weather. Uh, the story goes that uh, 
uh, it was either hola or perchta, I forget which, but she shakes her feather pillows, and when she shakes her feather pillows, it makes snow. Um, They were both considered teachers and caretakers of children. Uh, The animals associated with them were dogs and goats and animals of the chase, uh, which reminds me of Diana and Artemis. And if you read up on these goddesses, you'll see that there was some crossover there with Diana and Artemis as well as sort of mistress of the animals. And uh, they were both known for uh, reward and generosity, but also punishment if you if you weren't good. So uh, again, that reminds me of uh, you know the stories we grow up with. You know, were you naughty or nice? Are you going to get a lump of coal in your stocking, or um, are you going to get uh, you know nice things? And um, yeah, I think that's about all I had on Perchta, Roy. Um, who who are we going to next? Well, don't forget about Bafana from Italy. Oh yeah, Bafana. Yeah, so we're gonna, you know, we're gonna go over to Italy now. And um, remember, I, you know, we talked about the demonization. So Bafana becomes a witch, and of course, you know, in, uh, you know, it is, it's, it's meant as a derogatory label. Um, La Bafana. It's uh, she is Italy's Christmas witch. And children in Italy have, uh, you know, think of Bafana as sort of Santa Claus because she brings joy and presents. Um, she's said to have a possible connection to Perchta. In fact, uh, northern Italy has uh, holiday creatures symbol, uh, similar to um, those of Perchta in the Alpine regions. Um, and she's also connected to... Uh, something called the the wheat weaven wheat weaven, and uh, those were the white women uh, or the feminine spirits of uh, European folklore. And these women and similar ones were known all around Europe in pre-Christian times, and they're still part of Dutch folklore today. And it's thought that the origins of the wheat weaven or white women stems from the veneration of the spirits of dead wise women. And um, just to sort of finish up on Bafana, because there's not a whole lot on her that uh, I I have to share tonight, Uh, Bafana, the Christmas witch, along with many old Italian superstitious beliefs, still remains prevalent today. And that's sort of a testament uh, to even in the seat of the Catholic Church, old beliefs of the feminine die hard. Okay, so that's Bafana. I heard you mention uh, Grilla from Iceland in the presentation Friday. Can you tell oh. us more about her? Oh, yeah, Grilla. We can't forget Grilla. Um, you know, how often do we hear about uh, goddesses from Iceland? Well, you know, Iceland had uh, their own uh, female figure. And, you know, she's gotten demonized, too, unfortunately. She becomes this witchy giantess. And uh, she wasn't known to be part of Christmas until like the 17th century, uh, but Grilla enjoys a long history of tradition among Icelanders. She's uh, mentioned by um, Icelandic poets, and uh, she was possibly known to the Norse uh, of previous eras as well. Uh, in the Icelandic tradition, Grilla is the mother of the Yule lads. 
a group of mischievous gnomish creatures who descend from their mountain to wreak havoc in the towns below. And they say that Grilla carries children off in her sack if uh, if they don't uh, behave. She's sort of the counterpart to the male character you might have heard, Krampus in Germany, who also drags away bad children. Um, so Icelandic children who don't behave themselves may find themselves carried off by the wicked Grilla. Okay, um, so that's... The people at your t- the people at your talk Friday really mm-hmm. like the lost female figures of Christmas. And you talked about uh, Mother's Night. Um, can you discuss that a little more for me? Yeah, yeah. They they sure did seem to really get enthused uh, about this. And uh, I know one of the women came up to me afterwards, and she was of German uh, German descent, and you know, here she was, probably in her 60s, and she was just now discovering these uh, these Germanic uh, goddesses. So uh, I don't know. I felt really good, Roy. Didn't you? You know that that uh, now she, you know, had this, um, you know, sort of this cultural heritage that she could now explore that she um, hadn't even, you know, known before Friday night. She really did seem excited. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And so, yeah, we talked about some of the um, uh, some of the things that had been lost to us, and uh, one of those uh, was was Mother's Night. Now, that's sort of the English translation. Um, it's it's actually pronounced something like Moldrenheit, Moldrenheit, um, and that's a Germanic holiday, and it's part of Yule festivities. And many people uh, already know that the 12 days of Christmas come from the fact that Yule was not just a one-day celebration, but a festival that lasted for several days before and after the winter solstice. And uh, Moldrenheit, or Mother's Night, or Night for the Mothers, uh, is during this time. Uh, we we don't know a lot about the celebration because, of course, it would have been suppressed after the conversion of Christianity, uh, but we do know it was a time to celebrate motherhood and probably other female ancestors. This celebration of the feminine may be related to the age-old correlation between the fertility of women and crops and uh, the rebirth of, two, of, of new life. And the winter solstice, after all, celebrated the rebirth of the sun and the lengthening of days. And, you know, it's it's maybe hard for us to relate to that. I mean, especially if we're here in, in California or we live in a climate that's more sort of uh, like Mediterranean. I know many of my listeners um, come from Italy, and, you know, they have a climate probably not too different from us here. And so it's hard for us to understand this uh, worship or, uh, you know, of the return of the light or this, um, you know, making offerings to make sure the light returns. But, Roy, remember when we were in Ireland and we were there for, what was it, like two weeks and we never saw the sun? There was no Sunday. 
<laughs> no Sunday. True, true. And you know, and you know, in contemporary times, you know, we of course know that the sun is going to return. But you know, ancient people, a lot of them were illiterate, and you know, the the light means life. If the sun didn't return, you know, the crops wouldn't grow. They would freeze to death. Everything would stay barren. So light was an important thing. So we, you know, we have to sort of have context for why. Um, you know, the ancient peoples were so, um, you know, just so insistent on, you know, that that the light return, and it became, you know, part of their prayers and part of their um, uh, their their celebrations. Um, so anyway, uh, both male and female ancestors, you know, were were honored in Germanic spirituality, but it seems that the female ancestors played an important role uh, as guardians of the family, you know, and. Um, uh, online at uh, this wonderful website that I found, and if I um, see the name of it before we get off uh, the air, I will share it. Uh, but there was this uh, wood carving that we passed around on Friday night showing um you know a celebration of mother's night and as we said it's an it's an ancient pagan uh, ceremony celebrated um on like the 20th or 21st of December uh which would be um you know last weekend for us and the design that you can see if you can kind of close your eyes and picture what i'm describing um they uh show it you know it honors the living mothers or the mother goddesses or spirits and uh they have an altar with a blessing bowl in the middle and they have evergreens around uh, uh the the altar and above the altar uh protective household spirits that watch over the ceremony and two uh priestesses look like they're raising toasts uh to the mothers with drinking horns and there's also a six-pointed star uh, or rune um, that's a symbol of the goddess that's uh, you know that's worked into the picture. So a Mother's Night um, uh, is also celebrated on the date that we call Christmas Eve. You know, so it's somewhere in there between like the 20th through the 24th uh, of, of of December. And uh, so you know, maybe start your own tradition this year uh, for Christmas Eve. You know, raise a glass and toast your own mother or grandmother or your aunties or other women you know who have helped raise you. And uh, uh, because you know you are just perpetuating an old custom that dates back to you know the old goddess religion. Okay, so that was Mother's Night. Okay, you know I, I was thinking. You know, the Russians weren't religious, but they did have an old wizard or a winter god and his granddaughter. But for life of me, I can't remember her name. Can you tell us about her? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, her name, I think you for, you, you having trouble remembering her because her uh, her name was so hard to pronounce. It was something like, okay, I'm going to murder this, but I'll try my best. It's Snegoroka. Snegoroka. Um, Snegoroka. <laughs> yeah, and, and the more I say it, the easier it gets. Snegoroka. Um, she's another uh, Christmas character, um, and uh, she's uh, has roots in the old Slavic pagan past. Uh, she um, might be associated with some of the Norse goddesses like Skaoi, S K A O I. 
And um, it turns out that, uh, like you said, Roy, um, religion was banned in Russia, um, you know, during the Soviet era. But um, the people, you know, the peasants, they still had their old god uh, of winter, um, and they named him, you know, he was like their Santa Claus. He na- they named him Dead Moroz, D-E-D-M-O-R-O-Z, Dead Moroz. And he had his uh, lovely female companion, uh, his granddaughter, Snegroka, uh, or we sort of just started calling her uh, Snow Girl. No girl, and uh, she sort of lived on in the folklore of her people, uh, even after they were converted to Christianity in Europe. And um, you know, while often goddesses were diminished uh, into fairy tale creatures uh, or evil fairy godmothers, um, uh, you know, Snow Girl was you know sort of stayed alive in the hearts and uh, hearts and minds of the people, and. Uh, yeah, so Snegoroka, um, Snow Girl. Um, you know, the people at the talk Friday were surprised to hear you say Christians didn't invent the nativity scene, and Christians might have been influenced by Egypt. Can you tell us about that? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, um, you know, if if you've listened to my show before, you've probably heard me say I'm a recovering Catholic, and I know what it was like living in that Christian bubble, and you only hear, um, you know, sort of what they want you to hear, and uh, so many things that you grow up with you think come from Christianity, but, you know, it turns out they really don't. And uh, the nativity scene, um, you know, that we that we all know associated with you know, Jesus and Mary and the three wise men and the animals, you know. Um, well, that uh, that probably did not start with Christianity, just like the Trinity uh, did not start with Christianity, just like the idea of messiahs did not start with Christianity. You know, Christianity just borrowed all of that stuff. And... Um, What's really interesting, I can refer you to D.M. Murdoch's website because um, there is a nativity scene of Amenhotep III. And that nativity scene is uh, what we really believe probably inspired the whole thing uh, about Jesus' birth. And um, it's on the Temple of uh, Amon in Luxor, which was built by Amenhotep III, uh, 1411 to 1375 BCD. And if you look at the uh, the drawing that is a sort of a reproduction of the relief on the wall, you see the ibis-headed god Toth, or, um, you know, in Egyptian he was called Dehudi. Um, and in this story that you see on the wall, Toth, uh, was the Egyptian equivalent of the Hebrew angel Gabriel. Uh, he hails the Virgin Queen, and you know, in, in this story it's Egyptian, remember? So he hails the Virgin Queen Isis and informs her that she's going to bear a son. And uh, next Isis is visited by Knef, or spirit, you know, like Holy Spirit, and becomes mysteriously impregnated uh, when the Ankh is held to her mouth. 
and then later a child's born. Uh, this, the child god is giving gifts and adored by gods and men. The wall painting shows three human figures kneeling and offering gifts. Uh, and other ancient, uh, you know, in other ancient stories, complete the nativity scene. You have Horus, aka Jesus, and his virginal mother Mary, aka Isis, accompanied by Seb, uh, aka Joseph, his foster father and protector. Uh, who force you know who are forced to flee to the marshes of Egypt to escape from the evil serpent Harut, aka Herod. So anyway, um, you know this is this is really sort of a, a lot of fun. I think uh, you know if you're not invested in the Christian story and you might want to see what influenced it, um, look up uh, D M Murdoch's website. And you know she of course is not the only one that talks about this, but. Um, she explains it really well. And so look up D.M. Murdoch's nativity scene uh, of uh, Amenhotep III. And, uh, you know, the point being that the creators of Christianity, uh, you know, used this narrative that was already out there about miraculous births and um, uh, and also, too, um, you know, goddesses that were virgins. I mean, how many of the goddesses were virgins and gave birth to sons uh, long before Mary ever did? But you you all know that. Um, some other stuff about um, Christmas, uh, the word Christ, uh, that's, you know, that doesn't come from the Christians. It can be traced to the uh, Chaldean word Chris. Uh, which is a name for the sun, and later Christ uh, became, uh, you know, became a word that meant anointed person or enlightened one. And special people were anointed on their foreheads with olive oil, which was the fruit of the sun, so that they became shiny <laughs> like the sun. So yeah, let's bring Christ, uh, you know, Christ back to Christmas, meaning let's bring more enlightened people. Uh, into the world, you know, in the words of uh, my good friend Don Wildgrube. And um, let's not forget that um, the, you know, as long as we're talking about Christianity co-opting pagan history, uh, every solar hero was born at the winter solstice, um, you know, became the sun, that's reborn at the winter solstice. That included not just Jesus, but Apollo, Bacchus, Moses, Krishna, Mithra, and at least 20 other heroes. Uh, they were all born at midnight, born of virgins. And, uh, you know, uh, and if the winter solstice begins astrologically when the sun enters zero degrees of Capricorn and the birth takes place at midnight, guess what zodiac is coming up? over the eastern horizon at that time. Virgo, the virgin, on this day the sun is born of a virgin. <sighs> Pretty nifty, huh? So, um, you know, enjoy the holiday, but just uh, know the truthiness of it, as we say. You know, know the real origins. So what we have next, Roy? Well, you know, when I think of Christmas, I think of you. And when I think of Christmas and you, I think of mistletoe. <laughs> What's the story of mistletoe? Mistletoe, you're so sweet. Um, you know, we're going to have to find a piece of mistletoe and and hang it somewhere where you and I pass often. What do you think? <laughs> I love it. 
Okay, so mistletoe. Um, this kind of brings in the Norse deities, you know, the goddess Freya, uh, for instance. So here we're going to turn to that uh, culture, those goddesses. Uh, but first let me tell you a little bit about mistletoe and because um, it's all interrelated. So let's start with um, uh, mistletoe's story. Uh, it's actually uh, a parasite whose seeds are born on berry eating or born by berry eating birds to high branches of trees and up on those high branches they take root. Since it doesn't grow from the ground, the ancients thought it must come from the heavens, uh, perhaps planted by the sun or by gods themselves uh, that, you know, and made it uh, grow, you know, by uh, lightning bolt strikes or something. So many mystical and magical powers were assigned to mistletoe and uh, the tree-worshipping Celtic Druids, who knew it as the Golden Bough, or a charm for good fortune. So um, mistletoe could be prepared as a draught, uh, some sort of a um, hot drink, I believe, that was believed to have wondrous powers of healing, including an antidote for all poisons, even a cure for epilepsy and sterility. Uh, but it had to be cut under the proper phase of the moon with a golden sickle. Now, before you go out looking for mistletoe at the corner, you know, corner grocery store or something, and you think you're going to cook it up, don't, don't, don't. Because mistletoe, um, while it's considered a cure-all in Europe, uh, American mistletoe is very, very poisonous. So don't, don't even think about it. Um, let's see. But now this is where it ties into the Norse myth. So um, the Norse myth went like this, that Baldur, the god of light and sun, was invulnerable because the goddess Freya, his mother, exacted a pledge from every plant, animal, and material in the world to never hurt him. However, she neglected to talk to mistletoe. So when Baldur grew to manhood, um, you know, he would, you know, play around with the other gods by allowing them to, you know, practice uh, hurling weapons at him. And, you know, the weapons would just sort of bounce off his his, uh, his body because, you know, they had been compelled uh, by their vow to his mother Freya not to injure him. But now... The envious Loki comes along. Loki, he's always the trickster, ruining things. Um, he knew the secret that mistletoe was not in on the pledge to never harm Baldor. So Loki fashions an arrow from a branch of mistletoe and gave it to Hoder, the blind god of winter. Okay, so you know where this story's going. So Hoder, the blind god of winter uses the arrow, shoots Baldor, so thus you have winter slaying Baldor, the god of the light, of sunlight. So winter slews night, and we have the season of winter. And as the radiance of Baldor waned with his death, it is said that his mother Freya wept over his body, begging the mistletoe to forgive her oversight and to please, please let her son live. And as her tears fell over Baldor's darkened body, they turned into mistletoe berries, and slowly the light waxed, 
as Baldor returned to life. After that, no pledge was ever held valid unless it was made under the mistletoe. So that's the story of mistletoe. That's why you make your pledge, or otherwise known as your kiss, to your beloved under the mistletoe. I love it. (laughs) Let me ask you something. Well, you know we love Viking, but I used to watch the show Rome on HBO. Yeah. It was fantastic. It goes into history and everything so well. Um, Do you remember how they left their mark on Christmas and the winter solstice? Well, you know, I didn't get a chance to share this Friday. We ran out of time, but um, I intended to. And uh, so thank you for bringing it up because you didn't get to hear this Friday. So um, according to my dear friend Don Wildgrube, um, in ancient Rome, the major celebration was the Saturnalia, named after the uh, god Saturn, uh, who's the ruler of Capricorn. Well, this Uh, This day was dedicated to a daughter of Saturn, the god of time, uh, and uh, whose name was Ops, O-P-S, or a goddess of abundance that where we get the word opulent. So uh, in order to stimulate uh, opulence or an abundant year year ahead, the Romans had wild celebrations and behavior that was unthinkable during normal times of the year was appropriate at this one time of of the Saturnalia. Slaves insulted masters, people took lovers, people acted recklessly without regard uh, for consequences. Gifts were exchanged, especially candles and little dolls made of clay. And uh, while this sort of misrule um, went on, uh, the fire of the goddess Vesta blazed upon the city's hearth. Um, and the orgiastic festival, festivals were not intended to destroy the social order, but in a way uh, if they sort of supported it. So this was going on like around the you know time of the summer solstice and uh, I'm sorry winter solstice and you know this is what was happening in in Rome uh, at the time and the Roman Saturnalia was based on the Greek festival of Kronos, an old man with a long white beard. And uh, that celebration went on from December 17th through the 24th. And uh, it, it kind of makes you think about Santa Claus. And at the close of the pre-Christian era, uh, also going on in Rome, were the mysteries of Mithras. And, uh, you know, that became popular. Uh, as Mithras spread, uh, you know, the worship of Mithras spread, it was absorbed by many local deities of regional, uh, you know, solar lore. Uh, these were like uh, the Phrygian Attis, the Babylonian Baal, the Egyptian uh, Ra Osiris Horus, the Greek Apollo. So the sacred year began with the birth of the sun god at the winter solstice, uh, which fell on December 25th. And um, let me see what else. And then in 313 A.D., Emperor Constantine of Rome issued the Edict of Milan, establishing official governmental tolerance of Christianity. And due to the political wrangling between Constantine and uh, church elders, December 25th was set as the commemoration of the birth of Christ in 354 C.E. So the usurper, Jesus, to the solar throne was installed and later became the sole owner of Christmas. But 
you know, all of these other pagan gods uh, came long before him. So um, I, I, I think we maybe have time for just one or two more. Okay. Well, you know, I, we almost forgot St. Lucie and Chris Kine. Um, uh, you can't leave them out. Okay, okay, so we'll do these quick because uh, we have about uh, 27 minutes left and I want to make sure we have time uh, to do uh, do our meditation. So real quick, um, St. Lucy is an example of um, a goddess that uh, became a saint. Um, in Sweden, a girl rode through the village as uh, Lucia. She was dressed in white with a red sash and a crown of berries, uh, twigs, and candles. And um, she was associated with the light, and uh, her holiday was December 13th. And um, Lucy has ties to pagan customs in the winter solstice. And uh, in Scandinavia, there are other uh, elements that connect Lucia to pagan times. She uh, was depicted carrying also uh, sheaths of grain. Uh, and remember, it was an agricultural, uh, you know, agricultural uh, culture. And um, she was associated with these uh, little star boys, um, which we think, you know, maybe uh, became elves. Uh, but these elves um, featured prominently in uh, Norse religion. And Christkind, or maybe it's Christkind, I'm not really sure how it's pronounced. Uh, that was another figure uh, in Germany. Uh, she's she's not a saint, though, like um, Lucia is sometimes. Um, she literally trans- translated uh, Christkind means Christ child. How curious that the Christ child is represented by a grown woman. Uh, Christkind uh, is often the one who delivers gifts to children for the Christmas holiday, as well as St. Nicholas. Uh, the fact that Germany, whose heritage shares much uh, of that from Scandinavia, maintains a beautiful and otherworldly female figure with such a pronounced presence during Christmas celebration is yet more evidence that the feminine was every bit as significant to our ancestors' Yuletide celebrations as male figures are at Christmas today. So I think that's maybe a good place to leave our talk uh, about the different goddesses. What's next, okay. sweetie? Um, well, you know, um, it seems appropriate to end with eat, drink, and be merry the pagan way. Tell us about the celebrations of, and the food. Okay. Well, um, Don actually sent me some of this, um, and it turns out that there was uh, something called lamb's wool that people drank. And it was a hot drink made from ale, sugar, spice, eggs, roasted apples, covered in cream, and with pieces of uh, toast floating on top of it. Um, the cream foamed at the top, and it sort of gave it the look of lamb's wool. Um, I thought that was kind of interesting. Um also, pork was sacred food uh, to northern Europeans. It seems in the northern climates, uh, the swine were actually clean animals. Um, but, uh, you know, pigs found further south, you know, they 
uh, needed to protect their skin, so they soaked in, in mud. So anyway, it's not a surprise that uh, as we move further to the equator, they spent more time in the water and um, fouled up water supplies. But uh, anyway, um, the roast pork, um, you know, the decorated boar's head was always at the uh, the center of the table for Yule feasts. Um, the Druids uh, honored the holly bush. I think this comes from Sam. Uh, its red berries embody the female energy, just as the white mistletoe uh, berries symbolize semen. In the Celtic tradition, a holly day ritual was performed the night before the solstice. Holly branches were gathered and put up in the house as protection against evil forces, lightning, and death. And from this ritual came the term holly day, which became holy day. And now the word has been demoted to holiday, H-O-L-I-D-A-Y. So in our modern times, the holly is honored at Christmas time because its spiky points represent the crown of thorns, of, that were placed on Jesus's head, and it's uh, red berries or Christ's drops of blood. And the Christmas tree, um, we should mention that the Christmas tree, um, why do we put that up? Well, um, putting an evergreen tree uh, inside the home with decor is a tradition that comes from Northern Europe over 700 years ago. It was another way to honor the everlasting life of the evergreen. Candles were often placed on it to honor the sun's light. It was originally decorated with oranges and apples, symbolizing solar and goddess energies. Coins were also placed on the tree to ensure prosperity in the new year. But people have always had a sacred relationship with the tree. It's been compared to the unity of the cosmos. It's been called the tree of life, the world tree. And let's not forget, a lot of the different goddesses uh, were also first uh, worshipped as trees. Uh, Artemis comes to mind, uh, Asherah, uh, I think, as well. So uh, those are just uh, sort of some of the... um, you know, some of the fun celebrations and food um, of the holiday spirit, of, of the holiday season, I think. So I just looked up at the time, Roy, and I um, only, we only have 20 minutes left. I, didn't, I forgot that this show was going to be a little bit shorter. So I want to thank you for helping me out tonight, uh, bringing all of these different topics um, up so that I could share them with listeners. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And, and Merry Christmas to all of the group and happy solstice. Oh, Bye-bye. thank you, sweetie. Thank you so much. Well, I am going to read you uh, this Resolutions and Return of the Light, and uh, then I hope we still have time to do our meditation. So, um, You have been hearing a lot about our Northern European ancestors called uh, the holiday of winter solstices, Mother's Night, when female ancestors and goddesses were celebrated with their guidance uh, and were sought out by the people. We know it's also the time to celebrate the Roman god Saturn as well as Mithras and Jesus. We tell tales of the Yuletide goddesses such as Lucia and Holda and how the Druids celebrated their festival of liberation. It's a time when the soul is set free to dream a new world. 
the returning of the light from winter solstice forward for a time is not just about whether we see darkness or light in the sky. The light actually symbolizes the potential for life and new beginnings. That said, let me share a little story with you with a new perspective on the season, a myth I don't think that gets much play at this time of year. It's about the sun goddess Amaterasu, a Shinto goddess, whose sacred sites are on the island of Japan. Her myths share similarities with the Greek goddess Demeter and her body and unrestrained counterpart Baobo. You see, in her sorrow, Amaterasu, like Demeter, withdrew from the world, causing the land to become barren and bleak. In her grief, Amaterasu secluded herself in a cave, and no amount of coaxing could get Amaterasu to come out and restore fertility and vegetation to the land. Until, like in the story of Demeter and Baobo, Amaterasu was also coaxed out of hiding and despair by her counterpart in the myth, Uzumi. Legend has it, Amaterasu peeked out from the cave, her curiosity aroused by the laughter and clapping inspired by Uzumi's dance. But this wasn't just any dance. You see, like Baobo, Uzumi was lifting her skirt, a nice euphemism for showing her genitals or yoni. Why, you might ask? Well, on the exoteric level, it might seem funny or lewd to watch someone dance an erotic dance or striptease, if you will. I can't forget the woman on the stage popping ping-pong balls from her yoni in the movie Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, the curious Japanese men holding their mini flashlights hoping to get a glimpse of the yoni of female performers spreading their knees on stage. The yoni then and now holds great power and mystery. These stories of the dances of Baobo and Uzumi are not meant to be lewd. They are, in fact, meant to be sacred. They're from a time when procreation and sexual union were still considered sacred, and sex had not yet become something shameful and taboo. A woman's body held the mysteries of the cycles of life and death. You might recall those sacred statues in museums highlighting the pubic triangle, that part of the woman's body known to be the gateway or threshold of fertility and new life, until Christianity turned what was normal, natural, and sacred on its head. Baobo and Uzumi's yoni dances were the catalysts jump-starting Demeter and Amaterasu to once again spark new life. Think about the last time you really had a belly laugh. Did you not feel alive and vital? Seeing the dances of their counterparts brought Amaterasu and Demeter such joy that life was rekindled. Vegetation sprang forth once more and humanity could once again eat, sustain itself. People and creatures could live and not starve. In the story of Amaterasu, it is also said that as she peeked from the cave to look upon Uzumi's dance, she caught sight of her own image in a bronze mirror, and she became dazzled by her own radiance, light, and fertility were restored to the world. Some scholars believe this myth reflects the regenerative force. It is the power and awe inspired by the yoni across cultures as a catalyst for creation, change, healing, or protection. Let us remember also that women as life givers were associated with goddess herself, the creatrix of the world and everything in the universe. Life springs forth from women's bodies and women bleed without dying. This is very powerful magic. Simply put, without the yonis in these stories, without the yonis in our stories, life ceases to exist. Specific to the sun goddess Amaterasu stories and in many other spiritual traditions, 
as well as in science and nature, there is usually no life without light. That brings us back to the season of the returning of the light, which we've been talking about tonight. The days and nights are of equal length, with the days continuing to build in length and the nights shortening until the summer solstice in June. We, too, are coming out of the darkness and building momentum and energy or gathering light within ourselves to do things and to manifest our desires in the world. If we're in sync with the cosmic forces, this is the time for our own awakening and transformation and our evolution as people and spiritual beings. Each turning of the wheel at this time of the year enables us to renew ourselves, to be who we always hoped we'd be, and hopefully see things more clearly as we grow in wisdom. We have more juice now to reinvent ourselves, if you will. The light helps us see the world and ourselves more clearly and our role in the cosmic dance. With all that explained, can you see why this is a time of year when we make resolutions? Can you see how this tradition is based on the actual, natural, cosmic, and spiritual law? Let us use this time to fill our vessel with the light that nourishes our potential and fills us with life and with incentive to to accomplish positive change. I'd be remiss while we're talking about the light and motivation to not mention the goddess or St. Bridget of Ireland. She's both fire goddess and goddess of the healing waters. What do you get when you mix heat and water? Steam. Yes, steam. And what's steam? Steam is a force that propels you forward. Think, too, of Bridget's steam as a catalyst around this time of year that helps us renew ourselves, transform, and succeed in the resolutions that we make. So now in the closing moments of the show, I am going to try to do our Sleeping Goddess of Malta Dreaming and Inspiration Meditation. So make yourself comfortable. Focus your attention on your third eye. Breathe in and out. In and out. Let the distractions of the mundane world drop away and allow, allow, allow peace and serenity to drop over you like a veil. So you finally arrived in Malta. You have come here to continue your quest to seek out life's mysteries and what they hold in store for you. No grand cathedral or elaborate structure holds the keys for you this journey. Instead, you chose to explore these small islands hardly discernible on a map. No matter, though, for as long as you can remember, you've been drawn to make this pilgrimage. Now here, the hair on the back of your neck is standing tall, and you can barely contain the rush of adrenaline shooting through your limbs. The ancient stone temples shaped in the form of mother and daughter have been unceasingly calling to you. Now as you actually stand on the sacred landscape, you hear their call ever more loudly as their voices blend and call out like sirens of old. Their silent lure, heard only in your heart and mind, conjures vague memories of a time long past when you may have been a priestess here in a past life. Perhaps you once performed sacred rituals within the womb of these structures of the sacred feminine, teaching about the mysteries which seem just beyond your grasp in this life. Yet the connection between you and these oldest standing temples is still discernible. Now that you are actually here, that sacred cord connecting you to this place pulses with a new vibrancy, even if the images of the past had been but hazy blurs in your deepest dreams. 
you have felt driven and yearned to experience once again the intimate darkness and energy within the womb of the mother known as the hypogeum. It is here the sleeping goddess of Malta was found, and you suspect it is her voice that has been calling to your subconscious mind. Casting anxiety aside, you are unable to wait any longer, and you step into another world. Inside, walking into the dim light, you see the walls surrounding you, and you remember just beyond and below are sacred chambers that hold a memory of a time past that is yet to blossom again into its full potential. You relax in the cool, peaceful stillness, and suddenly you have the sensation that you are an embryo gestating within a living womb. Your life and all its possibilities are still before you, and as you open your mouth to give voice to your bliss, you are startled to hear its tone within the sacred labyrinthine chamber. You hardly recognize the magical qualities of its sweet song. Barely having comprehended this magical delight, you suddenly are distracted by a mist that appears from the darkness of a recessed niche within the chamber. As you watch in awe, the mist takes shape, and it is the sleeping goddess upon her altar. Her body seems to expand and contract as she lies in silent slumber. As you stand there mesmerized, you notice her form is shimmering with a silver hue that seems to transmit thought. Wild-eyed and amazed, you realize that she is communicating with you to help you, to guide you. And as your minds touch, you recognize her and know with certainty it has been her trying to reach you through your dream time. With every breath, she instructs you to go deeply within yourself to that vast, limitless container residing in your core. She wants you to reflect upon the ideas and vision that live there and to acknowledge that which inspires you. You must have faith in your ideas and inspirations and aspirations. She assures you that despite this time of uncertainty when your life path may not be clear, you must trust in your divine guidance and gifts. You recognize now when you hear her calling or see the sleeping goddess, you are being reminded you have been going astray and you are out of sync with your destiny and true purpose. Seeing her as a sign to listen to the guidance of your dreams, you are to seek your muse, guideposts, or inner healings by allowing yourself to hear the revelations born in the knowledge that incubates in your deepest self. Listen and trust your divinity within. Be willing to hear your own intuitive voice. Having come so far to make this journey, you now know that when you feel lost or empty, you can always return here in your mind. Just breathe deeply and go within to the womb of the hypogeum for a refill or to reconnect and hear the ancient voices of wisdom emanating there. Allow the shimmering silver radiance of the sleeping goddess to envelop you and help you find your way. As you exit the hypogeum, you put your hands together in a gesture of prayer and bow your head in thanks to the sleeping goddess for her awakening you to your dreams. So when you're ready, open your eyes, shake your hands and feet, speak your name aloud, and return to the sacred space. Ah. <clears throat>
that was kind of a short version of the meditation because we are running out of time here. But you can find it uh, in Goddess Calling, Chapter 27. And also, uh, as I was reading about resolutions and Return of the Light and Amaterasu and um, uh, Bridget, uh, that's in Chapter 1 of Goddess Calling. And uh, I apologize for... um, things running a bit long here with all the different uh, uh, things we wanted to share. And um, also, too, um, some of these uh, things that I I read to you tonight were from uh, Carolyn uh, Numeric's um, webpage, Carolyn Numeric, uh, the female figures of Christmas and uh, a lot of this. So you might want to Go there yourself if you found some of this interesting and um, just enjoy uh, some of what I've read to you. Now, Friday night, um, before we left our gathering, we sang one of Jan Aldrich Clanton's uh, songs that uh, are to the melody Away in a Manger. And I'm just going to share a couple of the verses with you real quick so you get the idea of how wonderful she is uh, changing the lyrics. This is a way in a manger. Our mother within us, so holy and blessed, you nurture our spirits with comfort and rest. Oh, give us your wisdom and strength for each day and fill us with love for all people we pray. Our mother within us, so manly your names, revealing our power you help us to claim. Our voices of courage to speak against wrong and joy overflowing to sing a new song. Our mother within us forever abide with blessings unfolding and arms open wide. You give us new visions of life full and fair. Your angels surround us with tenderest care. So that was Jan Aldrich Clanton and James R. Murray. <clears throat> so, dear listeners, um, that will bring us to uh, a close tonight. Uh, I want to thank Roy for being a good sport and helping me present all of that uh, material to you tonight. Uh, Also to Carolyn Numeric and um, uh, Samantha Sage and Don Wildgroup were just uh, some of the folks uh, whose material I presented tonight, and I want to make sure I give them credit. So as... um, we um you know uh, you know come to a close tonight um i just want to um say i hope you're having a good holiday and i hope you're doing things that nourish you and uh don't you know don't feel so compelled to conform and uh you know do things that uh, don't really feel right to you you know it's perfectly all right not to you know make new traditions So, as we close uh, the show tonight, um, I'm going to close it with Jan Aldridge Clanton's Holy Darkness. And I want to thank you for being with me. I want to thank you for another great year with you, my listeners. Uh, I will be back on Monday uh, with another show, the last show of uh, 2014. And uh, I just appreciate you all so much. You are the gas in my tank. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for your emails. Uh, Thank you for all your show suggestions. Thank you for the encouragement. And thank you for the donations. And thank you for buying my books. It really does make a difference. Uh, It really does. I I can't express it uh, enough. So uh, 
Uh, I hope you have a wonderful holiday, and please enjoy our closing song, and I'll be back with you again Monday. Please join me then. Excites our war.